here we are trying to address the first question, namely how and why the Industrial Revolution took off in Britain first rather than the China Yangtze Delta region or India or parts of Japan. And we base, as previously mentioned, our discussion of this topic on Robert Allen's book, Global Economic History, a very short introduction. So in that book, he first rejects some factors commonly assumed to have prevented other parts of the world economy from developing the Industrial Revolution. And some of these factors are often mentioned in discussions about development economics and economic growth. So the factors that seem to be not so relevant in explaining why Britain was first to industrialize is geography, second culture and norms, third institutions, certain institutions matter while others do not. As far as geography is concerned, the location and accessibility of resources, the weather, the climate and so on, all constitutes geography. But geography can be mediated by technology. So geography is not necessarily destiny, although it does to some extent matter. And this will be later seen in terms of the resources of coal that Britain has available, but it can be mentioned that technology allows Britain to access these coal resources. So second, culture and norms, and this is typically associated with a tradition of thought in historical sociology harking back to Max Weber, the German sociologist, that relates, for instance, social and cultural norms, such as uh, work ethics. Uh, he mentions the Protestant work ethic that are important for being conducive to economic growth. And these have secondary effects on other aspects that could inhibit or foster economic growth. In addition, social norms or cultural norms could relate to fertility, the role of the family. Allen here argues that this factor is not so relevant in explaining the origins of the Industrial Revolution. And he suggests that agricultural countries continue to be poor, they remain poor, not because farmers do not want to use technology so to improve their output but rather because they do not have access to it and this discussion will be useful for our later exploration into china's transformation post 1978 because it will be seen that the availability of for instance chemical fertilizers and installed irrigation systems that were the legacy of the so-called planning period allowed Chinese farmers and allowed Chinese agricultural output to rise tremendously after the 1978 reforms. So the reforms in itself were an enabler 
but the legacy of the pre-1978 period also mattered a lot to explain the post-1978 increase in output. Now, having discussed geography and cultural norms being not that relevant for explaining the Industrial Revolution takeoff, now we come to a third factor, which is institutions. And it turns out that some institutions matter, such as markets, which induce competition and provide some economic incentives, but other forms of institutions, such as private property, do not matter as much as is commonly assumed. And Allen suggests that this is going against the assertion that laissez-faire, that is a minimal state, low taxes, strong property rights, are necessary for growth. Rather, Alan, Robert Allen suggests that a strong and stable government is helpful for the types of earlier growth because they provide stability, good governance and order. And he's suggesting that the biggest danger to prosperity was intervention by foreigners that were attracted to the wealth of these civilizations and countries rather than expropriation or interference by the emperor or the state. In other words, to put it differently, national sovereignty and independence matter a lot and it allowed the countries to grow economically, including absolute monarchies. And this will also be seen later in the post-industrial revolution period where countries without independence, national sovereignty, such as colonies and the post-colonial states, did not fare economically well due to their earlier lack of economic freedom and independence. So if these factors all matter less, that is geography, culture, norms and institutions, what things are indeed conducive to growth. And here we can merge our discussion with that, what we have seen in the book by Kenneth Pomeranz in The Great Divergence, that is linked to the so-called California Historical School, which suggests that the things that are conducive to growth are commonly found among the most advanced regions of the world economy on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. And these factors are markets, to a certain extent, commerce and sophisticated technology, as well as commercialized agriculture. And the most advanced parts of Asia share these factors, markets, commercialized agriculture and sophisticated technology with the most advanced parts of Europe. And it should be noted that the level of technological sophistication is comparable, but the type of technology that exists in Eastern and Western Eurasia, so that is in, say, Netherlands and Britain, is different 
from the type of technology, although it is quite high in India, Japan or parts of China. Now, having, having mentioned the things that are common to the most advanced regions of the world economy, what are the things that made Britain, which would emerge as the first industrializing country, different from its peers? And as mentioned in a, another episode, what made Britain different from its peers is the access to coal reserves, its overseas expansion and conquest, as well as the distribution of population growth. In other words, what are the things that are lacking in continental Europe and parts of Asia that are present in Britain? And there is a lack of access to coal reserves, which are useful for resource-intensive production. There is a lack of or a reduced level of overseas conquest, forced trade and imperialism, which would enable Britain to ease its resource constraints. And as mentioned, the distribution of the population growth is different. And that provides different types of incentives and in the rest of the world outside of Britain at first there is no incentive to apply and adapt labor saving technology while in Britain there is an incentive an economic incentive shaped by its access to coal reserves imperialism and access to overseas natural resources and markets and it's population growth distribution that pushes British innovators to have incentives to adopt, adapt, apply and further develop capital-intensive and resource-intensive technologies. And these economic incentives were not present to the same extent in countries other than Britain. So, to preview the things that do matter and that pushed Britain ahead relative to its continental European partners and the peers in Eurasia are threefold. Imperialism, technology and globalization. And there is some overlap between some of these factors. So imperialism affected the growth in cities in Britain, it raised wages and it led to an increase in proto-industry and it thereby fueled and shaped the path of technological innovation. Globalization and forced trade matter because the comparative advantage of British manufacturing was established by this confluence of imperialism, coal and an innovation cycle. And subsequent spin-offs of the technological innovations that allowed domestic innovation to take place and manufacturing to take off inside Britain, centered on the cotton industry, then also had 
other effects, for instance steam power allowed the development of steamships and transport and that made international competition fiercer and enabled further growth of manufacturing after Britain established its comparative advantage in cotton and some other manufacturing industries and it allowed it to sell its output overseas in its colonies which were restricted from developing their own native industries or switch to different sectors of production. As mentioned, the comparative advantage that emerged in British manufacturing was established by this triangle of imperialism, coal and innovation. And imperialism and the state policy of Britain for overseas conquest, then as mentioned before, shaped the growth in cities and raised wages. And it fueled technological innovation. And Allen concludes that the Industrial Revolution was the outcome of the first period of globalization and imperialism beginning in the late 15th century with the so-called Age of Voyages including Columbus, Magellan, Da Gama and other explorers. And he suggests that therefore the great divergence in economic outcomes today begins with the first globalization. So when we move to explaining a little bit these voyages and their outcomes, we can see that, for instance, Vasco da Gama from Portugal, Christopher Columbus from Geneva, and then later also Spanish explorers set out, and they were then later joined by Dutch and English explorers who voyaged overseas. And in particular for the Dutch and the English, this overseas, if you like, exploration led to a growth of cities and export-oriented manufacturing as a, if you like, an intermediate outcome of the exploration. And Allen is citing data from two snapshots from 1500 and 1750. And in 1500, he is mentioning that 75% of people work in farming. 75% of people working in farming, so three quarters of the population is in agriculture. And 18% is active in rural, non-agricultural production. So it is 18% of the population is working in the countryside but is focused on non-agriculture production 
And you can think of this as some form of proto-industry or handicraft production that is not agricultural output. And 70% of the population lives in cities or is urbanized. Now, 250 years later, in 1750, the share of the population working in farming has dropped from 75 to 45%. And the share of the population active in rural non-agricultural production has increased from 18 to 32%. And this relates to, for instance, the putting out system and the cottage industry and all of which is describing a form of proto-industrialization. And many of these manufacturing outputs were traded with other countries and colonies. And 23% of the population is living in cities and is urbanized. So it suggests a speedily urbanizing country in Europe. Other countries in Europe are also urbanizing, but not at the speed similar to the Netherlands or Britain. So it seems that the Dutch and in particular the English received a great impact from their overseas conquests and colonies, both in terms of demography as well as economic activity. Meanwhile, Spain, which was one of the earlier nations and economies to conduct overseas conquest and exploration, did not manage to transform itself well or receive so many benefits from its imperial conquests. For instance, the huge inflow of silver into Spain from Latin America led to an inflation that made Spanish exports very uncompetitive. However, on the other side, successful imperialism had major effects on Britain, as mentioned, the urbanization, rise in wages, and a pressure on agriculture to supply food to the then growing population, which then later provided economic incentives for the so-called British Agricultural Revolution. Now, the outcome of these overseas conquests were in effect an impact on relative factor prices. Factor is a word that describes an input for production. So factors of production are inputs for production. Typically, there are three, land, labor, and capital. So factor prices are the prices of these factor inputs. And when we mention relative factor prices, we can relate the prices of these factors to one another, say the wage relative to the interest rate. So overseas conquest and imperialism had an impact on domestic demographic trends, as well as the type and shape of industry and commerce. And the 
changes in relative factor prices then had an impact on the direction of technological innovation. And this is the second big factor. So the first big factor that Alan mentions is globalization, imperialism, colonization. And the second factor is technological change and innovation. But technology and innovation is what one could describe as a endogenous factor. It is a factor that is determined inside the model. It is innovations and technological advancements are responding to factor prices and can also be affected by economic policy. And the path of this technological innovation was shaped by the relative factor prices, which in turn were influenced by the legacy of earlier conquest and imperialism and the resulting effects on the distribution of demography at home. And Alan is mentioning that in Britain in 1750, to put some numbers on the change in relative prices, the relative price of labor in 1750 in Britain relative to capital so the relative price of workers relative to capital was 60% higher in Britain than in continental Europe. And in Asia, the relative price of labor was even cheaper relative to capital. So you can see a great divergence in relative factor prices where wages are quite high, the highest in the world in Britain and lower in continental Europe and even lower in Asia. And this shaped the path of technological innovation. As only in Britain there was a high enough private return to invent and apply to use machines to mechanize cotton production as cotton production used substantial amounts of labor prior to, for instance, the innovation of the spinning jenny, one type of innovation. And later there was use of energy, use of steam, use of coal, and that later had also secondary innovation impacts such as steamships, steam transport. And as far as steam power is concerned, Alan mentions that steam power was shaped by the European-wide scientific culture. So he mentions rightly that there was a scientific culture that was not just present in Britain but throughout Europe. And one has to therefore explain why the innovations were so much faster in Britain compared with the rest of Europe despite the scientific culture being quite widespread and common throughout the whole of Europe. And he is suggesting this is due to the economic incentives faced by British innovators. He suggests that the scientific advances, advantages and so advances that were underpinning the steam engine were actually found in feel like continental Europe, but the research and development, so the application, the testing, the adaptation was carried out in Britain because 
due to the high wage rate relative to capital, there was uh, enough private return, profit to be made by innovating and adapting and applying the steam engine. And this in particular relates also to another factor that we mentioned earlier, as the returns came partly not just from the use of resource-intensive technological innovation that could substitute for labor, which now was quite expensive in Britain, but it also was a confluence with the discovery and of the existence of large coal reserves in Britain. So the steam engine could, could be used to drill and drain mines, coal mines, and the large coal industry therefore made the development of the steam of steam power much more profitable to innovators. Now, the result of imperialism and then the impacts on domestic demography uh, and the rise of technological innovations that were using capital intensively and resources intensively was a reversal in manufacturing fortunes. And this is, if you like, the result and the conclusion of this, of the answer to this first question. Namely, why did British Industrial Revolution take off first? And this reversal in manufacturing fortunes then resulted also in a shift in the locus or the center of gravity of economic activity. So British imperialism enabled the successful trajectory of technological progress towards capital-intensive and resource-intensive growth using primary product imports, using the slave trade, and this allowed British manufacturing to produce more and use its colonies and other markets as outlets, as outlets for its industrial output. So the industrialization in Britain occurred simultaneously with a de-industrialization in Asia, in particular China and India. And the so-called economic superiority in Britain was enabled by colonialism. And that led to a destruction of traditional manufacturing in Asia. And as mentioned in another episode, the reversal of manufacturing fortunes and the shift in the center of gravity of economic activity can be compared by relating two dates in modern history, namely 1750 and 1913, where in 1750 about two-thirds of manufacturing took place in Asia. So 60% of manufacturing took place in, in Asia, China and India in particular. Although manufacturing output per head was approximately the same with the most advanced Western European countries. And then just before the First World War in 1913, only 5%, so from 60% to 5% was the share of manufacturing, world manufacturing output by Asia, in particular China and India. And more 
importantly, the output per head in terms of manufacturing output in the UK was 38 times that of China's and 58 times that of India's. And then if you then move from UK to other, if you like, countries in the West, the combined share of Europe, UK and US combined was 75% of world manufacturing output. And we now have addressed the question of why Britain was the first country to industrialize. And we have now come to summarize the effects on the gravity of economic activity. And here we mentioned that the West, including the US and Europe, led to an increase in manufacturing output. And we now turn to this development and growth in the part of the world economy that we can call the rest of the West. So, so far we have looked at Britain and why its industrial revolution was the first to take off. And now we turn to how the United States and European countries, other European countries, could also industrialize. Now, this fortune contrasts sharply with that of today's developing and underdeveloped countries. And there's a suggestion that the lack of freedom in the colonies to rebalance their economy as well as change their economy's sectoral composition forced these countries to switch to agriculture and become primary product producers. And this is shaped by comparative advantage that is a description of why the colonies then were focusing on primary product exports and agriculture. And Ellen is suggesting that this led to a prosperity in the short run for these colonies, but in the long run there was an absence of development. And this partly is due to the lack of national sovereignty and independence that colonies did not have, but the rest of Europe and eventually the United States did have, and that allowed the other countries, the rest of the West, to catch up with Britain, which is what we turn to in the next episode.